really nice to see you. It feels like home a little bit, so it's nice to be here. Um, let me lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, I ask that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, my family, as you may know, live up in the Blue Mountains, and Dad's part of the RFS. And so since September, he's been out fighting fires pretty much every day, all over the state. Uh, and so for the last four months, bushfires have been pretty much at the front and centre of my mind. They've occupied, occupied a large part of my mental load, and it's been kind of obsessive, really, um, checking the RFS app, trawling through live updates on news websites and combing social media for news. I made the big mistake of joining the Blue Mountains lay, totally unqualified Facebook group for fires. I get like 50 notifications a day. Um, it's been really obsessive, and especially as the fires have moved closer to my parents' house. I think on Friday night, I stayed up to 2 a.m. listening to 702 updates as that subway came through, and it's kind of ironic, given what I was preaching on this weekend. There's not much I could really do about a fire in the west. That's an hour's drive away, two hours' drive away. Um, amidst all the, the stories of resilience and tragedy and courage, it's been hard to miss the palpable fears that individuals and communities have felt and expressed. Fear of the fires themselves, these relentless infernos which have claimed over 20 lives, over a thousand homes and burnt millions of hectares of land. Fear for wildlife and domesticated animals, many now under threat with over a billion um, animals estimated to have died because of these fires and fear just for the future and what it might hold with the fire seasons becoming longer and more intense. Our standard of living, our very lives seem to be imperiled. And this is all really encapsulated for me on the 15th of December as the um, Gospers Mountain fire was bearing down on Mount Wilson. There's a photographer, a Blue Mountain photographer I follow on the internet and he posted a, um, a photo that really struck a chord with what a lot of people were thinking and feeling. Um, this is the blaze bearing down on the Blue Mountains and part of what he said was, this goes way beyond some possessions, a few homes, a few lives. The world is entering an unprecedented phase and humanity is not at all in control anymore. Now, putting aside for the moment whether humans were ever really in control, this was a post that resonated with a lot of people. It got hundreds of comments, thousands of shares. We're not in control. These fires, one of the things they've exposed as they've burned up the bush is our deepest fears. And that's kind of fair enough because, to be honest, they're pretty scary. And one of the glibbest things you can do in a scenario like this is to tell people not to worry, to not be afraid. And yet our passage this evening says exactly both of those things. Do not worry about your life, says Jesus. And a li little later he adds, do not be afraid, little flock. And as I've been reflecting on these verses this week with the smoke clinging to my clothes and burning my throat, 
I don't think that Jesus is being insensitive or uncaring. I don't think he is just passing off and shrugging aside our terrors and our anxieties. Jesus is not telling us to don't worry, be happy, as if our worries are meaningless, less, are meaningless, not worth anything. You know what I'm trying to say, meaningless. No, instead, he offers us real deep comfort and real hope amidst the changes and chances of this fleeting world, this world where thieves do rob, where the moth does eat and spoil, a world that's marked by not just nakedness and starvation, but war and famine, bushfires and cyclones and volcano eruptions. It's all very real. And Jesus gives us a real reason not to worry. Though worry and fear roll over our lives like the sea billows, Jesus promises us that his Father will provide. God will sustain us. And as we dig into this tonight, uh, I've got three headings for us to try and tease this apart. Sadly, they're not alliterative. Um, I'm not as skilled as the other Matt. Um, Worry, I'm going to think firstly about worry, secondly, trust, and thirdly, so let's get into it. Worry. Now, you don't really need to be a sociologist to figure out that we live in an age of anxiety. From the macro, like the, the climate crisis that we're living in or the current state of affairs in the Middle East, um, to the micro issues like job security or the stress that comes with parenting, we live in anxious times. And each of those things is stress, stressful on its own and in its own right. But they're each given further leverage in our minds by the controlling cultural narratives of our age. That our, the world we live in has no rhyme or reason to it. We're told that it's all random, all ad hoc, and all chaos. And I think that's captured really succinctly by that famed Ox Oxford zoologist, Richard Dawkins. He says that the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Dawkins goes on, he says, whether you're worried about your families, your work or your world, some people will get hurt and others will get lucky. But there's no design, no purpose behind it. Just indifference, just a giant cosmic shrug of the shoulders. Is that what the world's really like? Is that what you think the world is really like? When you boil it all down, is the universe really run by blind, pitiless indifference? It doesn't mean anything because no one cares or controls it. When Jesus exhorts us to not to worry, it's not because of cosmic indifference or apathy. It's the polar opposite, actually. It's because we live in a world that is sustained by a loving God who cares deeply about his creation. Jesus says in our passage, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. What you will eat, what you will wear, Jesus isn't really talking about luxury items here. 
he's not saying don't worry if you if you have to pick between the polo or the Yamani. Don't freak out if you can't drink the Scandinavian water. He's talking about daily provisions, the basics of life that enable our ongoing existence. And the word for life that Jesus uses here is actually the word for soul. Don't worry about your soul. He's speaking about the essentials of living at their very most basic and most essential, actually. God will sustain your life. God will provide for your soul. But that's important for us to hear because uh, we live in a world that likes to emphasize detaching from, from things. Jesus is not encouraging us to detach from these things. He's not saying you have to detach yourself from food or, or clothes. They're important. He's not telling you to condo food or clothing. That's not the path to a, a stress-free life. Rather, Jesus is calling us to place our trust in God to provide for what we need. He will sustain us. It's the same thing he calls us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer when he says, give us today our daily bread. And Jesus tells us to pray in that way precisely because this is not a world of blind, peerless indifference. This is a world that's sustained by love. A universe where love actually is the most real thing because it's a universe where God sends the rain on the godly and the ungodly alike where the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous God made a world that is not drab or grey he made a world that is full of glare actually actually more than just a little bit unnecessary that's full of all these creative flourishes that I don't think any of us could imagine unless we had seen it. If I had to make the world, I think I would get round to making trees. Trees are pretty cool. I like trees. They do some nice things. I'd probably make 10, maybe 20 before I'd run out of creativity. Uh, according to the scientists, there are, are at least 60,000 different types of trees in the world, possibly 100,000 species, depending on how you count it. You get the picture, right? It's lavish. God lavishly creates the world. And he doesn't just lavishly create it. He loves it. He cares for it. He nurtures it. He feeds and protects all that he's made. He's not distant. He hasn't taken that retirement trip to the very far reaches of the galaxy and forgotten about us. He's intimately involved in this world, creating it and sustaining it. He's part involved in its daily operations. And so he's able to sustain you because he knows you and he knows what you need. He's able to provide for you, to provide for your soul. And Jesus makes this point by calling us to fix our minds on three examples from the world around us. So firstly, consider the raven. Uh, in Jesus' world, ravens were among the least respected of birds. And it's probably s still kind of true today, I think. Ravens represent, in one way or another, being op opportunistic. They tend to loiter around highways and in urban centers, preying on roadkill and human waste. You tend to find them a lot in Canberra. I don't know if that's coincidental, but that's where I see them. 
Uh, and in many ways, ravens are not too different to ibises. They're just kind of more ugly. Jesus says that God, God cares for them. God cares for the raven. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. And it's not that they're idle. They're not bludgers. But they're also not worrying that the supply of worms is going to run out. And at the same time, they don't just expect the worms to crawl down their beak. What ravens do is exemplify a freedom from anxiety. Be like a raven. God cares for them. How much more does he care for you? You who bear his image. How much more is God able to provide for you? Next time you're up at Coles, shopping bags there at the checkout, trying to count the costs, working out if you're going to have enough to eat that week. You probably won't see the ravens lined up next to you. But know that God cares for you. He will provide for you. God sustains you. Well, secondly, consider the lily. It's a beautiful flower, right? It's represented in art galleries around the world. Such is its beauty and its elegance. It doesn't grow tired from its work. It doesn't exhaust itself from producing its own beauty. You tend not to see lilies out in the field toiling over the sewing machine to make themselves look pretty. There's no Botox involved here. But here is a flower more richly adorned, more elegant than the richest king in Israel's history. God's kindness in flowers and herbs exceeds the greatest human achievements of wealth and power. How much more is God's kindness towards you? Or thirdly, consider the grass. That's pretty nice looking grass. A lot of grass around here doesn't look that pretty at the moment. That's because grass is here today and gone tomorrow in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It's a constant symbol for transience. It looks nice one day and it's shoved in the oven the next. And yet even God clothes such a fleeting creature. It's beautifully adorned and clothed by God. If he clothes the grass like this, how much more will he clothe you? God clothes and feeds the other parts of his creation, will he not also provide for you? Uh, commenting on this passage, the 16th century French pastor John Calvin puts it this way. The Lord who has given life itself will not suffer us want what is necessary for its support. Whenever we are seized by any fear or anxiety about food, let us remember that God will take care of the life which he gave us. God is so on for life that he not only provides it to us, but he continues to provide for its ongoing, sustaining life in us. God promises to provide for you. So my question is, do you trust him? Do you trust that God will provide? Do you take Jesus at his word? When he says that his father will give you what you need, what your soul needs to live. Because according to Jesus, there are two ways to respond to our worries. There are those who on the one hand entrust themselves to God. 
and there are those, on the other hand, who refuse to entrust themselves to God. Both have their worries. Both still have their ongoing worries and concerns and stress and anxiety, but they do two very different things with those worries and stresses. There are those on the one hand who entrust themselves to God, and they do that by sinking their lives into God for their meaning and hope and joy and peace. It doesn't mean, of course, that they won't face stress. Far from it. And in fact, sometimes following God brings more stresses. But they're people who have learnt to cast their worries onto God, that he's big enough to carry all our concerns about food and clothes, work and marriage, the kids, the fires, world peace. You see, the Christian is a person of monolithic faith. We stand on one big, solid stone, one uniform, single foundation to our life, which is the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if that faith is as small as a mustard seed, even if it feels weak or is beset by doubts, that person is safe and secure because it's never about the quality of your faith. It's about the object that it's placed in. That person is a person who rests their trust on the great, big, unshakable, solid stone that is Jesus Christ. And since they've been gripped by God's grace, instead of anger or apathy, they're able to cast their worries onto God. He will provide. And they know that here in the very pit of their belly where their worries sit. It may not always be the way that they want, may not always be how they might expect but because we're so convinced that God has raised Jesus from the dead and promises us everlasting life we're able to face the worries of this life with confidence that God will provide whether that's starvation or fires loneliness or war or even death itself we're able to cling to our good and generous God trusting that he will provide. Our Father knows what we need because he knows us. And that in turn actually empowers us to love our families and our neighbours, total strangers, complete randoms, and even our enemies with a sacrificial, other-person-centred, servant-hearted love. Because we've been given so much, we in turn are free to give. It's worth explicitly saying, though, that when Jesus says, do not worry about your life, do not fear, he's not condemning those who, for medical and other reasons, deal with anxiety and worry. Again, I think Calvin is helpful here. He says that when Jesus forbids them to be anxious, this is not to be taken literally, as if he intended to take away from his people all care. We know that men are born on the condition of having some care, but immoderate care is condemned for two reasons, either because in so doing men tease and vex themselves to no purpose by carrying their anxiety farther than is proper or than their calling demands, or because they claim more for themselves than they have a right to do and place such a resilience on their own industry that they neglect to call upon God. 
So the children of God are not free from toil and anxiety. Yet properly speaking, we do not say that they are anxious about life, because through their reliance on the providence of God, they enjoy calm repose. I find it really encouraging that the words of a Christian brother from 500 years ago, long before we'd really come to the awareness of mental health issues that we have today, is able to speak into this issue like this. Though life is full of worries and stress, I would be lying to say otherwise. Those who know God can find rest for their weary souls in him. He's big enough to deal with all our worries and still provide for us. It's not like we'll ever empty the bank of his provision for us. On the other hand, though, there are those who refuse to entrust themselves to God. And well, Jesus says they are just like the rest of the world around them. They're driven by their worries. They strive after what they need. It could be, as Jesus says, they strive for what they want to eat or drink. But we also strive for other things, don't we? Things we think are going to nourish our souls and give substance and meaning and satisfaction to our lives. It could be financial security. Many people live or die based on their bank balance and their portfolio performance. It could be your respect and the esteem in which you're held. So when people praise you, you lift, and when people criticize you, you're crushed. Whatever it is, if you refuse to learn from the raven or the lily or the grass, if you refuse to cast your cares on God, Jesus says you will continue to worry. And that can take many forms. It might be a motivation of greed to consume more and more to feed those desires you have. It might be a fear of scarcity, a worry that something is about to run out and so you desperately grasp, desperately, desperately try to cling on to what you have. Whatever the worry is, your soul will never find peace, never be satisfied. And so at a deep existential level, you'll always be worked up, always caught between hope and fear because of the anxious emotional insecurity and instability worry for your soul brings. It's like a ship that's tossed up high on the crest of a wave, only to be brought crashing back down. So we should ask ourselves here, why? Why is worrying like this so agonizing? There are, I think, doubtless psychosomatic reasons that we could explore, but Jesus hints towards a theological one. Those who entrust their worries to God, they have a father who knows them, who knows what they need, and loves to provide, generously loves to give. But there are those who keep worrying, who strive like the nations around them, and they effectively make themselves orphans. You see that, right? They strive. And that's not only a lack of trust that God will provide, that's a denial that God is their father. They need to strive because they believe that they have no one to provide for them. 
whether it's through your own strength or industry, whether it's your own good looks or the people you know, your connections, whether it's your intelligence or your street smarts, if you rely on yourself to relieve the worries of your soul, you deny God's fatherly provision over your life and you'll always end up disappointed because you won't ever be able to find rest for your soul in yourself. Strength and beauty, intelligence and friends, they will all fade away. It's only by casting your worries on God that you can break free of your worries, only by striving for God's kingdom instead of the desires of your own soul can you be free of the power that your worries have over you. Now, living in the West, it's pretty easy to take these things for granted most of the time. You turn on a tap and clean water comes running out. We have a supermarket just up the road that sells fresh food 363 days of the year. It's remarkable. We've got fresh bread and milk every day, fruit in and out of season. Starvation and nakedness aren't things that most of us had to grapple with. Though over the, the last few weeks, we've seen people on TV not too dissimilar to you and me in towns only a few hours' drive away from here who've had to confront those very issues. Extreme weather events, as we've experienced over the last few weeks, they rattle us because they show just how precarious flowing water, fresh food, clean clothes are. These things aren't necessarily a given in life. All the stability, the security we have around us here in the inner west and in Sydney can disappear just like that in the flash of an eye. And it's not just those things. Life itself is so precious and precarious, isn't it? In all the ups and downs that 2020 has brung and will bring, will you trust God to provide for you? Will you trust him to sustain your soul? Jesus says, strive for God's kingdom. Don't be like the nations. Don't strive for food and shorts and fresh loaf of bread. Strive for God's kingdom. It turns out that devotion to God's purposes is the only thing that can totally transform your life. Because instead of scheming and scurrying and worrying and hurrying, about having enough in the world and making ends meet, you'll end up being free to treasure God's grace. And this is why the Bible never just dismisses our worries. It never just dismisses them out of hand. Our worries, they're actually useful because they reveal our deep inclinations. They reveal our deepest commitments, the things that motivate us. So let me ask you, you've taken this picture from Luke's gospel, what would, what would it look like if this was true, what Jesus is saying here? I think the person who casts their cares on God, who seeks his kingdom rather than food or clothing, will be a person who's marked by generosity, not only of their money, but of their time, their energy, their hospitality. Sell your possessions, says Jesus, and give alms. He's describing a person who's not stingy, who doesn't hold back, who's not trying to cling on to their possessions, but shares. 
they've adopted a posture of likeness to their wealth and their possessions because they know deep down that ultimately it's God's. Everything you have has been given to you, provided to you as a gift from our generous Father. And when you know it's a gift, you're free to re-gift it, actually. You're free to give of your time, your energy, your money. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the heart, you know, it's a metaphor that's used throughout the Bible for the things that we trust in the most. It's those things that we love, the things that we put our hope in, the things that we most treasure. The heart is what captures our imagination and fires our soul. The direction of the heart then controls everything. Our thinking, our feeling, our decisions, our actions. What we most love, what we find most reasonable or desirable or doable. Whatever we cherish in our hearts most controls the whole person. And this is why Jesus here links worry and the heart. Because what you worry about reveals where your heart is. And so as we commence this new year, not even a fortnight old, you'll know whether you're worried about what you'll eat or drink or what you'll wear or anything else. In those moments when you're asked to give time or money or energy, and in those moments, if you try to find a way to justify not giving, you'll know if you're worried about those things if you try to find a way to hold back. And if that does happen, you can actually be thankful, I think, thankful that it's been revealed to you and you can heed Jesus' words here. He says to you, little flock, little flock, do not be afraid because God sustains us and so we lack nothing. Um, a little later in Luke's gospel, we get this really lovely little action, interaction between Peter and Jesus that speaks into this I think Peter says look Lord we've left our homes and followed you we've given everything up for you and Jesus replies to Peter and to the other disciples truly I tell you there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life God promises to give you the kingdom. Everything that belongs to Jesus will belong to you. You will lack nothing. You lack nothing because God sustains your life. He will provide for you. So let's draw all the pieces together for this evening. Uh, as I've reflected on my last five years here at St. Albans, I've just I've been struck, actually, by the extraordinary amount of generosity that really characterizes this community and goes on here at St. Albans. Generosity of time and energy and hospitality. And an immense amount of financial generosity, too, which not only sustains the life of this church and enables it to grow, like the ministry center campaign at the end of last year, but an immense amount of generosity beyond 5.2, whether that's changing the life of children through compassion, combating injustice and oppression through IJM, 
supporting the work of gospel partners around the world. There's an incredible amount of generosity that's been cultivated in this church by God's Holy Spirit. I think when it comes to generosity, though, 2020 is going to be an interesting year to us here in Five Dock because we're here in Five Dock. Uh, if you don't know Five Dock well, this is a suburb that really prides itself on its, not just its community feel, but its family feel. Um, it's a suburb that when people are doing it tough, the narrative is that we come together and we help each other out. It's a family suburb. And we see that reflected in a very small way. In uh, Five Dock, if you don't know, Five Dock has a Facebook group for people who live in Five Dock. It's not called people who live in Five Dock. It's called Five Dock Families because that's what this suburb is for. We help one another out in Five Dock. And it's a really great narrative and you get to see really lovely examples of it. The general trend, though, for Australia is kind of different. The data from the ABS and the ATO suggests that generosity is something that Australians, even Australians in a lovely suburb like Five Dock, struggle with. Uh, the rates of volunteering are on the decline. We don't really like giving up our time and our energy as much as we used to. The rates of hospitality are on the decline as well. The stats suggest that the average Australian this year will have in their house, not, ex not including people from their own family, only four people in their house the whole year. Which, is, which feels unfathomable to me to have only four people in my house this year. And financially, well, this week has been kind of extraordinary, hasn't it? As we've seen lots of grassroots campaigns that have raised thousands and tens of millions of dollars. The response has been phenomenal. And that really fits the trend that Australians give generously in a crisis like this. That was true in 2009 with the Black Saturday fires, and it's true earlier with the um, Boxing Day tsunami. But the other trend the stats reveal is that charitable giving in Australia is on the decline and has been for a couple of years now. This current bushfire crisis might arrest that, but the trends are in place south. What I really want to commend to you this evening is that our generosity towards one another, and not just in-house, but to the world as well, is actually a way we get to witness to our trust and our experience of God's remarkable provision in our lives. There's an extraordinary amount of generosity that, uh, generosity that goes on at St. Albans of our time and energy and hospitality and money. It's a sign, actually, that we operate on a different economy, one that's not driven by supply and demand or the invisible hand of the market or making strategic decisions about efficiency. We're driven instead by grace. We live in an economy of grace. We make decisions based on grace, life-sustaining, sacrificial grace. And the more that we do that, the more that we live that out in our lives, we get to point to a God who's all about grace. It's not really surprising that this is a community that gives generously. Generosity is at the forefront of our life here at St. Albans because it's at the forefront of our life with God. 
God is so generous. He doesn't just provide us with food and clothes or rain and sun. He gave us his very self. These words in Luke's gospel aren't merely words that Jesus taught his disciples. They're words that he lived by. When Jesus was betrayed and beaten, he was stripped of his clothes and hung naked on the cross. Though he was the source of all life, he cried out for water on the cross. He had no food, no clothing, and he entrusted himself to his heavenly father. He went to that cross because of our refusal to trust God with our worries and our because of our strivings to secure our own souls. He gave up his own life. He said, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So instead of comfort or security, he strove for God's kingdom all the way to death. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that we who had nothing could become rich by sharing in his inheritance. He took our worries and fears and made them his own so that we could have his life. And he did all of this freely so that his father could be your father and richly provide for you. When you know this, when this truth wraps itself around your heart and sinks down into your mind and fills your imagination, that's when you have the power amid all the worries of your life to live freely and generously knowing that God generously provides for you. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, you know what we need even before we ask. Thank you that you sustain our lives and provide for our souls. We ask this evening that you would comfort our weary hearts and calm our anxious souls so that come what may this year we would find our rest and our joy in the death and life of your son the Lord Jesus Christ who gave up everything so that we could be your children and we ask this in his name Amen Let's stand and bring our weary hearts, our anxious souls to Jesus now and ask for his help. <coughs> 